I was 11 years old when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, but I can still recall many of the details associated with the death of our 35th president. And what if there was a document that predicted this event, and we knew this document had been written about a thousand years earlier? What would we think of such a document? Well, that's the question that Bible teacher Ray Steadman asks in one of his books. And he goes on to say this about such a document and what his thinking is about it. He said, suppose that this document predicted that a man would come into prominence as the head of a great nation, that he would be riding in a metal chariot not drawn by horses, and that he would be violently murdered by a lead pellet fired from a rod-shaped weapon made of wood and iron, aimed from the window of a tall building. Suppose that this document also predicted that the news of the man's death would be instantly carried around the world and millions would mourn for him. Such a document would be viewed with awe and wonder today. Why? Because it would have made a startling prediction of President Kennedy's death fully a thousand years before the invention of the automobile or firearms or the instantaneous communication media of the modern world. The prediction would be regarded as fantastically accurate, so accurate that it would be absurd to dismiss the prediction as a mere coincidence. Clearly, such a prediction could not be made except through supernatural means, end of quote. Now, as amazing as such a document predicting the death of President Kennedy would be, we actually, folks, do have a document that predicts the precise details of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it really was written a thousand years prior to his first coming. It's called Psalm 22, and it is our study this morning in light of our observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, Psalm 22 is one of the most remarkable portions of Scripture because, as I just said, it was written a thousand years before Jesus died. Yet, it gives the most detailed description of Christ's crucifixion found anywhere in the Bible. In this psalm, we read of at least nine specific aspects of Christ's experience on the cross that were fulfilled during the six hours that he hung on those wooden beams. And what makes this so absolutely astounding is that Psalm 22, get this, was written more than 500 years before crucifixion was even invented as a form of capital punishment. So, how are we to explain this? How do we explain that King David, writing 1,000 years before the time of Christ, predicts with absolute precision, absolute exactness, details about his death and describes the very method used in his execution when that method wasn't even known to man. Well, the only possible explanation, the only possible explanation is that the Bible is indeed, as it claims to be, the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. And the prophetic nature of Psalm 22 is one of the strongest proofs of this. See, Psalm 22 is pure prophecy in that David, being not only a king, but he was actually a prophet. That's what Peter called him in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. David was supernaturally guided by the Spirit of God to write about the coming crucifixion of the Messiah. In fact, David wrote about Christ's death with such accuracy 
that Psalm 22 has been called the fifth gospel, as well as the gospel according to David. And it really is just that. You see, here's something important to understand about Psalm 22. Unlike most of David's psalms, which speak of his own personal experiences in life, especially of David's sufferings, Psalm 22 is different. It is exclusively about the crucifixion sufferings of Christ and has nothing to do with David personally. Absolutely nothing to do with him personally. And the reason that I say this is because as we look back at the Old Testament, we read of no circumstances nor any incidents in David's life that even remotely resemble the sufferings that he writes about in Psalm 22. For example, there's nothing that we read about in Saul's persecution of David that comes even close to the kind of suffering David describes in in this psalm. You see, if David had written Psalm 22 about himself and his own experiences, then we would expect to find in it, as we do in most of his other psalms, something personal relating to his life, his struggle with his sin, his repentance, his own confession of sin, or his pleadings with God to bring vengeance upon his enemies. But that is what we see in so many of David's other psalms. But we don't read anything like that here in Psalm 22. Nothing like that. Which leads us then to the conclusion that this psalm is pure prophecy, meaning that it is strictly a prophetic statement about the death of Jesus Christ, in which David foretells in a very detailed way the horrors that Messiah would be forced to endure by being executed by crucifixion, all of which have now been fulfilled and are recorded in the New Testament. Now notice how many of the statements made in in this psalm find their fulfillment in Christ's death. For example, there's the very opening verse, very, very first few lines or words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, as I said, this is the first line of Psalm 22. It's the very words that Jesus spoke while on the cross just before he died. That's recorded in Matthew 27, verse 46. In verse 7, we read, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. Now, these actions of mockings and waggings of their heads, that was fulfilled exactly this way by those who stood by the cross and hurled verbal abuse at Jesus. And that's why we read in Matthew 27, verse 39, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. And then... In verse 8, we read that those who wagged their heads at this, this one who was suffering, they insulted him by saying, commit yourself to the Lord and let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And folks, this is exactly what the New Testament tells us the religious leaders of Israel said about Jesus while they mocked him on the cross. Matthew 27 Verse 43, he trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. In addition, the very vivid descriptions given by David of this one being executed, they find their fulfillment in Jesus being crucified. And so we read in the second part of verse 15, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. That speaks of someone who is dehydrated, someone who is in need of of fluid. And that was fulfilled when Jesus said in John 19, 28, I am thirsty. 
and the dividing of his garments, mentioned by David in verse 18, that was also fulfilled, fulfilled by the Roman soldiers, and the Gospel of John tells us so. John 19, starting in verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And finally, in verse 16, we're told that they pierced my hands and my feet, which is exactly what was done to Jesus when he was nailed to the cross. So listen, there's really no question that Psalm 22 is a prophetic description of the death of Messiah that has already been fulfilled in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But stating that Psalm 22 is pure messianic prophecy and that it is a prophetic picture only of the Messiah's death and has nothing to do with David's own experience of suffering, it's important to understand that this is a prophecy unlike any other prophecy about Christ's death that's recorded in Scripture. It is unique, it is distinct, it is indeed different, and I'll tell you why. What we have in Psalm 22 isn't simply a prophecy that gives us some information, some historical facts about the Savior's death. No, this psalm is much more because it gives us, note this, it gives us the anguish of the cross from Christ's perspective. You see, Psalm 22 reveals what our Lord was thinking, what was going on in his mind while he was being crucified, especially those last three hours on the cross. Here's the way one Bible teacher explained the unique makeup of Psalm 22. He said, in Psalm 22, we have an x-ray that penetrates into his thoughts and into his inner life. In this psalm, we see the anguish of his passion. His soul is laid bare. In the gospel is recorded the historical fact of his death and some of the events which attended his crucifixion. But only in Psalm 22 are his thoughts revealed. See, in Psalm 22, God gives us a unique glimpse into what Jesus was thinking while he was on the cross. And because of that, as I said, Psalm 22 is unlike anything you'll ever study concerning the death of Christ. And I, I say that because Psalm 22 gives us a view of the cross you'll not find anywhere else in the Word of God. Instead of looking at the cross as a bystander gazing up at Jesus as he hangs on the cross, Psalm 22 instead gives us a view from the cross itself so that we feel as if we're hanging there with Jesus hearing him express what was on his heart and mind at the time he went through the agony of dying for sinners. That is the precious picture and the unique picture of Psalm 22. And so this morning, this morning, we want to look at the opening verses of this psalm, specifically verses 1 through 6, as we prepare our hearts to observe communion, the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, I want you to know we are about to stand on holy ground because we are going to delve into some of the divine mysteries of Christ's sufferings. 
Now, in light of the fact that Psalm 22, as I said, is strictly about the sufferings of Messiah and not about David's sufferings as a godly man or his response to those sufferings, I want you to know there's very little personal application for us in this psalm. It was designed that way. There's application about these things in other psalms, other places in scripture, but really not here. Psalm 22 isn't intended by God to be a psalm that teaches us how to suffer as a Christian or how to respond properly to our enemies. No. Instead of teaching us how to suffer as Christians, this psalm teaches us, note this, how Christ suffered for those who would become Christians. And so the glory, the beauty of Psalm 22 is that it gives us a greater appreciation for what our Lord endured on the cross on our behalf. If you're a believer in him, you should come away from our study today having a deeper understanding of what Christ has done for you, how he has suffered for you, and a greater appreciation, a greater and deeper sense of gratitude for the salvation that he's secured by his sufferings. Now, if you're not a believer, then my prayer has been and continues to be that God will use today's study to open your eyes as to the meaning of Christ's sufferings and their relevance for you. Now, as David presents the sufferings of Jesus on the cross, he does so by revealing that there were several different ways that Jesus suffered. Well, he certainly suffered in a physical way because crucifixion was physically just torturous, as we can imagine. He also suffered emotionally by the constant insults that his enemies hurled at him as they mocked him as he hung on the cross. But this morning, I want us to look at the most significant aspect of Christ's sufferings because it is this particular suffering that brought us salvation. The suffering I'm referring to is the suffering of being rejected by God the Father. We break in where it begins. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now David begins with the most heart-wrenching, the most gut-wrenching words found not only in this psalm but found anywhere in the entire Bible, because this is the cry of one who has been utterly forsaken and abandoned by God. And that was precisely the experience of Jesus Christ. These words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I said earlier, these were the very words that Jesus uttered while on the cross at three o'clock in the afternoon, at the end of a very strange and gloomy three-hour period of time in which God had covered the entire land of Israel in complete darkness. That's what we read in Matthew 27 verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, that would be 12 p.m., darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? And the significance, folks, of this darkness is that God was pronouncing judgment upon his own son. Darkness being a biblical symbol of judgment. And he did this at this particular time because while on the cross, Christ was being judged in the place of sinners. By being abandoned, being rejected 
by God the Father. And though others around the cross were not aware of the meaning of this darkness, Jesus was very much aware of the meaning of this darkness as he realized that for the very first time ever, he was being rejected and abandoned by God the Father. He who had spent all of eternity in perfect fellowship with the Father was now utterly forsaken by him. The opening verse of the Gospel of John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, the Word was God. Christ is the Word. And being God, He had always, for all of eternity, all of eternity, been with God the Father and with God the Spirit. Literally, the the meaning is He was face to face with God. Experiencing Perfect, unbroken fellowship. But all that changed when he was placed on the cross. And he knows it. So he cries out what is really a rhetorical question because he knows the answer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone has described this this cry of the Son of God as the call of a lost child searching for their father whose face he longed to see again. But the father's face is nowhere to be found because he's purposely hiding him, hiding it from his own son. And that's why when Jesus cries out, he, he doesn't even refer. Notice he doesn't refer to God as his father. Something that he did constantly during his earthly ministry. He was always speaking of God as the father. Instead, notice he cries out to him, not as his father, but as his God. He says, my God, my God, not my father, my father. That's unique. That's unusual. And why does he do this? When up to this point he is only called God Father. The reason is because while on the cross there was a breach in their relationship. Their spiritual intimacy was gone. See this is the dreadful cry of someone who's been abandoned and orphaned by their father. So that they've been rejected and have no relationship with a father. But why was this the case? Why did God the Father forsake and reject Jesus, the one he had said he was well pleased with, the one who always perfectly obeyed him. Listen closely. While no one can fully understand or completely explain how God the Father could turn his back on God the Son, it happened because God the Father is perfectly holy and his holiness does not allow him to have any kind of favorable relationship with sin. And while Jesus was on the cross, he became sin on behalf of his people. You see, though Jesus is the sinless son of God, while on the cross, he became not a sinner, but a sin offering for us in the sense that he died as the substitute sin bearer of those who would later believe on him, believe that he was paying the full penalty for their sins. And what was that penalty? It was death. Spiritual, eternal death, which by its, its definition, it means to be separated, to be abandoned, to be rejected by God. That is the definition of death. And that's why... Jesus was forsaken by God the Father. When he was, he experienced the full weight of the Father's holy wrath against our sin. The wrath that all of us here, we deserved. 
In other words, God the Father treated Christ the way we deserve to be treated by being eternally judged for all of our sins. Listen how the Apostle Paul explains the meaning of Christ's death in these precious words of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, though Jesus never stopped being holy, never stopped being sinless, while he was on the cross, God the Father treated him as if he were guilty of committing all the sins that would ever be committed by everyone who would come to believe in him. Though he committed none of them. That's the substitutionary meaning of the cross. And that's why Christ was crying out to God, knowing full well why he was being abandoned. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he also predicted and he also explained the Father's abandonment of Christ while on the cross. We read these words in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Listen, dying in our place as our sin bearer and substitute, Christ indeed was crushed by the Father. And he experienced hell, which is eternal abandonment by God. And our Savior, he did this so that those of us who would come to believe in him would never be abandoned by God. Folks, this is why our salvation is so wonderful. This is why it's so precious. This is why it's so special because it's a salvation that we did not do anything to secure. He did it all. And we will never lose this precious salvation. We'll never be condemned by God in the future because Christ was already condemned by being forsaken by the Father in our place. This is the message of the cross This is the message of Christianity. This is the message of the gospel. And though we can certainly understand the basic essential concept of Christ being our substitute, I think everybody can understand substitution, punished in the place of sinners, there is still a great deal of mystery to his death that none of us can fully fathom. How can we fully fathom How one member of the Trinity can forsake another member of the Trinity. It can't be done. But it's true. Even though we might not be able to fully comprehend the mystery of how God the Father could forsake and reject God the Son. I want you to know that the scripture presents it as a real abandoning. That's important to know because there are some people who are so baffled and and even disturbed by the thought of Christ being rejected by the Father that they have theorized that Jesus only felt forsaken, but in reality, he really wasn't forsaken. They would liken it to us feeling all alone at times without a sense of God's presence when all the while God is still there, though we just didn't feel his presence. But that wasn't the case with Christ. It's not like that at all. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because he knew 
that for the very first time and only time in all of eternity, a member of the triune Godhead, the Trinity, had turned his back on another member of the triune Godhead so that he was really being rejected and really being forsaken, just like any lost sinner would be. Commenting on this divine abandoning, James Montgomery Boyce wrote this. He said, according to the teaching of the New Testament, Jesus was indeed forsaken by God while he bore the sin of his people on the cross. This is the very essence of the atonement. Jesus bearing our hell in order that we might share his heaven. To be forsaken means to have the light of God's countenance and the sense of his presence eclipsed, which is what happened to Christ as he bore the wrath of God against sin for us. However, not only was Jesus rejected by the Father, but the second part of verse 1 reveals that God had no intention of ceasing to reject him and helping Christ while he was on the cross. He was abandoned by the Father and he would stay abandoned by the Father. Notice as verse 1 continues, Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. In other words, he's saying, in spite of my groaning, in spite of my crying out to God for help, my cries have not brought the help that I seek. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. And you see, the reason for this is because the Father has completely withdrawn from Christ, and therefore he will not answer his pleas for help, regardless of how much or how long Or even what time of the day Jesus cries out to him. God is completely silent to his cries and he will remain silent to his cries. And that's why we read in verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day but you do not answer. And by night but I have no rest. When Jesus cried by day, meaning he cried out to the Father in the daytime, which is a reference to the first three hours that he was on the cross when the sun was shining. No answer came from the Father. And when he cried by night, meaning he cried out to the Father at nighttime, which is a reference to the last three hours he was on the cross, when darkness covered the land, God was still silent. You see, being abandoned and rejected by the Father was the greatest suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. As horrific as the physical pain of crucifixion was for our Lord, There was nothing as awful, nothing as terrorizing or horrific to him as being forsaken by his beloved father. Nothing. So think about this. This was the first time that Jesus had ever experienced the silence of God the Father. In fact, this is the first time that Jesus had ever really been alone. I say that because in John chapter 16 verse 32, in light of his upcoming arrest, Jesus said this to his disciples... Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet, I'm not alone because the Father is with me. But while on the cross, the Father was not with him. He was absolutely alone. So that those who would come to trust his death for their salvation, we will never be alone. And we will never experience the absolute silence of God. But God was silent towards Christ. Then in the next few verses, in response to God's silence, Jesus expresses the incredible sadness of his heart. He does this as he considers the strangeness of the Father's reaction to him right now 
when he knows that God has always been faithful to answer the prayers of his people. Now notice what David proceeds to tell us concerning what was going on in the heart, the mind of Jesus as he was abandoned by the Father. Verse 3, Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. As Jesus hangs on the cross, knowing that the Father has forsaken him, he thinks about the fact that God is holy. And he tells him that in his prayer. He says, yet you are holy, which means you are perfect. You always do what's right. You never make a mistake. And then Jesus refers to the Father as you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And what he means by this is that the praises of the people of Israel are so numerous towards God that he's pictured as actually sitting enthroned upon them. In other words, all of God's people recognize how great and how holy he is, so they're continuously praising him. It's just overflowing. They're overflowing with praise, so much so that God is pictured as sitting upon all those praises. But what were they specifically praising God for? Well, David tells us in the next couple of verses, verses 4 and 5. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now, essentially, what Jesus is thinking and saying here to the Father is this. The reason your people praise you so much is because you've never abandoned them like you've abandoned me. Even though they've sinned, you've never rejected them like you're now rejecting me. When they cried out to be delivered, you came to their rescue and you delivered them, but that is not the case with me. I'm crying out to you for your help, but there's only silence from you, not deliverance. In other words, what Jesus is saying to the Father is that I, I, know, I know the reason you won't help me isn't because you're not holy, because you are holy. I know that. And I know that it has nothing to do with the fact that you can't help me because you've helped others in the past when they cried out to you. So why is it? Why is it that you aren't going to rescue me? Why is it that you have completely turned away from me? Folks, again, these are rhetorical questions because Jesus isn't looking for the answer. He knows exactly why God has turned away from him. And we see this in that he answers his own question in verse 6. Notice verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Jesus refers to himself here as a worm, a mere maggot that is someone who is utterly worthless. And that's the reason God won't help him. Because while he was on the cross bearing the sins of all of his people, Jesus wasn't worthy of any help since he was as worthless as a little worm. And that's how God the Father treated him, like a worm and not a man. Now folks, think about this. This is how far Christ came to be your Savior. The eternal Son of God the glorious, sinless, and perfect creator of all things, hanging on a cross, 
made of wood that he himself created, looked upon as a worm and not even as a man. This is the grace of God. This is the depth of God's love for you. Commenting on the statement, but I'm a worm and not a man, Charles Spurgeon wrote these words. He said, this verse is a miracle in language. How could the Lord of glory be brought to such abasement as to be not only lower than the angels, but even lower than men? What a contrast between the I am and I am a worm. Yet such a double nature was found in the person of our Lord Jesus when bleeding on the tree. He felt himself to be comparable to a helpless, powerless, downtrodden worm, passive while crushed and unnoticed and despised by those who trod upon him. He selects the weakest of creatures, which is all flesh, and becomes when trodden upon, writhing, quivering flesh, utterly devoid of any might except strength to suffer. This was a true likeness of himself when his body and soul had become a mass of misery, the very essence of agony in the dying pangs of crucifixion. Before we move on to the Lord's Supper, let's just pause to pray because we are on holy ground and this is a solemn moment. Our Father, we understand perhaps more than ever why you You rejected your son. It was for us, for our sin. He never sinned. He didn't deserve this, but we did. We deserve to be treated like worms and and even worse. Lord, we deserve it all, but thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for leaving the glory of heaven to become a despised worm in this world who men utterly hated and disdained and mocked, and you did it for us. Lord, it is... It is emotionally hard for us to even hear this, but this is the truth and we thank you for this. We don't understand what it meant for you, the sinless Son of God, to be rejected and abandoned by the Father. It's incomprehensible for us, but this is how your word presents it and we we take your word to be absolute truth. So Lord, as we move into the supper now, you've told us, you've commanded us to observe this. May, may this be a meaningful time as we confess our sins, as we think about what you've done for us, as we praise you, as we adore you, as we magnify your name, understanding perhaps a little bit more of the depth of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, this is what Jesus went through to save us. It's only fitting then that we come to the Lord's Supper, communion with these thoughts fresh in our mind, realizing just how low Christ became that we might be exalted in heaven. You understand that? He came low that we might be exalted. How he was rejected by the Father so that we might be accepted by the Father. This is the time to think about Christ's death on your behalf, how his death has impacted you, how it should motivate you to live for him. Joel read verses a few minutes ago earlier about we make it our goal to be pleasing to him. That's what life is all about for a Christian, whether in death or in living, to be pleasing to him. And how do you please him? You obey him with the right motives. Now, this is also the time to make sure there's no sin that you're hanging on to. We all struggle with sin, but I'm talking about sin in your life that you go, yeah, I know this is wrong, 
but I'm not going to do anything about it. That needs to be repented of. That needs to be confessed. That needs to be forsaken. Sin is what caused Jesus to suffer so much. So deal with your sin. Confess it. Repent. Recognize it. Judge it. Turn from it. And if you're not a Christian, then the only proper response to what you've heard this morning is to become one. Because Christ's death is the only hope you have of escaping the judgment of God. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. But you can escape the judgment of God by believing that Christ was judged in your place. Otherwise, you will die in your sins and be abandoned by God forever in hell. No escape possible. While on the cross, Christ was treated by God as if he were a sinner, which he wasn't. And when you, when you trust Christ as your Savior, God treats you as if you were righteous when you're not. That is the grace of God. I urge you to experience it. I'm going to give you a few moments now to think about this, to meditate, to pray, and then we will partake of the bread. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we will obey you. We are here to obey you. You told us to do this in remembrance of you. And having looked at this psalm, Lord, it's, it's more vivid in our minds than perhaps ever before. We do remember what you did for us. We do remember that you were forsaken for us. We do remember that at that, that time on the cross, God the Father abandoned you. There was silence. There was real rejection. And you were treated like a worm, not a man. Lord, and you did it for us. We don't know why, because we deserve to be treated that way. We're so rebellious. We're so depraved. We're so intent on doing our own thing. And yet you have loved us and demonstrated your love by dying for our sins. So Lord, in obedience and honor to you, we partake of this bread and we partake of it in your name. Amen. Paul continues, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, how precious it is to know that you are completely satisfied with Christ's death atoning for us and you justify us you're pleased to look upon him instead of us and you judged him instead of us Lord as long as we live and even in glory I don't think we'll ever fully be able to fathom that and that's why we'll be praising you for all of eternity all the time we are there we'll be in awe of you but let it begin here that we're in awe of you. Even with our, our fallen minds, Lord, we can grasp somewhat of your grace and thank you for that. So Lord, we do what scripture tells us to do. We're going to partake of the cup now as we remember that you shed your blood
for us as of a perfect lamb, unblemished, without spot or wrinkle for us. And we want by this, Lord, to proclaim to all who might not even be believers who are either in the auditorium or watching on live stream that we are proclaiming your death and we will do this until you come back for us. And having said this, Lord, we ask this all as we partake of the cup. We pray and ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.